Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I'm glad you're here for another week of what I know will be a good conversation. Not so much from my part, my end, but from my guest's end. She is amazing. Lisa Sharon Harper. She has been on the podcast once before. She has a brand new book out called Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. So take a breath and take in that title and subtitle. We'll find more about, find out more about the title fortune, but that subtitle, take that in. And maybe you've read Lisa before. Uh, I talked with her a number of years ago here on the podcast about her book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Um, she's been featured in the New York, in the New Yorker, Relevant, Essence, uh, HuffPost, you, uh, all the places you've been and have read. <laughs> and more than what I just told you. So all this to say, uh, welcome back to Faith Conversations, Lisa Sharon Harper. It is so great to be with you, Anita. I'm really a privilege to talk with you and your audience. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to it as well. And, and as I began looking at your book, Fortune, um, I, you know, all of a sudden I thought, wait a minute, I want to look back and see how long ago you and I talked here on the podcast and your previous book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right came out in 2016. I thought that's been five years ago. Isn't that amazing? It's it been is. That long. It's been that it's long. Crazy. And of course I have two reactions. One, I love it when someone, you know, they've put a lot of time and yeah, well, anyone that writes a book always puts loads of effort, but you know, you've spent time between these two books that says something, but also as I got into the content of fortune, I did, I wanted to ask, you know, the very good gospel, <laughs> how everything wrong can be made right. Do you still believe that? Yes, <sighs> absolutely. Yes. The, and I'll tell you what, writing fortune convinced me even more. Ah. It did, because it's clear to me that the reason why the world is as it is now on the brink, America on the brink of losing its democracy, the world uh, uh, flirting with dictators around the world, climate change threatening our, our literally our human existence, mm -hmm. the reason we are here is because of choices that we've made. Yes. We've made choices. We've made choices about how we should all live together. These are political choices. These choices, they stem back from colonialism and enslavement, the slave trade. We made choices about how, how we would flourish. And I say we very, very generously. We yes. as in basically um, the Western world, right. um, Western colonialists, how we would flourish. And with, with no, actually with, with justifications about 
the impact of the others saying it didn't impact them at all because they're not fully human or justifications as in, well, they're not Christian, so they're not worthy of protection of the law or citizenship. These were choices that were made and every little choice made an impact, but some choices made like impact that still reverberates through the generations. And because I know now, because of doing the work for fortune, that these were choices, I know also that repentance is possible. Repentance is possible. And that was the whole point of the very good gospel. Everything wrong can be made right if we simply repent, if we simply agree with God about what is true and seek to protect that which God seeks to protect and seek to cultivate that which God seeks to cultivate. If we only turned from our wicked ways, then God would bless our lands. Let's put it that way. That's yes, well said. it's possible. It's well, well said. So with that said, I, you know, I want to mention the fact, I think it's important to say this right up front, that you have spent 30 years researching. I mean, you know, you just haven't signed on to yeah. the ancestry type uh, websites and done <laughs> this for the last week. two yeah, years. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, last week. You have spent 30 years researching 10 generations of your family yeah. for this book, Fortune. Yeah. Again, I want to say that subtitle again, how race broke my family and the world and how to repair it all. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, two things, I, I want to know where want you to tell folks where the the name fortune the title fortune came from mm-hmm. but also what led you on that 10, 30 year journey of you know researching all of this mm. well first i just want to say if you hear chomping in the background that's my dog <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love it can you hear i don't know if you can hear her i can't i can't right now oh but... good that means i have a really good mic but okay, if we good. hear so... a bar- yeah if we hear a bark we'll know <laughs> You'll know. I love it. Okay. So that's my dog, babe, in the background. Yes. Her name is babe. Sweet. Um, Like the pig, but she's not a pig. She's, she's really awesome. (laughs) Okay. So fortune goes back nine generations and she is my seven times great grandmother. Um, The ones who were the original people who first came to this land, the earliest ancestors that I know of who came to this land um, were, and direct ancestors were Maudlin McGee and Sambo Gam slash game, depending on where you see his name written. Um, Maudlin McGee was uh, an Ulster Scott um, uh, immigrant who was an indentured servant and married to George McGee in Somerset, Maryland. Um, Sambo Game was an enslaved man who was boarded on board, forced on board a slave ship in the Gambia and sailed here in 18, I'm sorry, 1686. Maudlin made land here in 1682. So they met, they fell in love, they had a child, a child who they named Fortune. And their name, I mean, Fortune was born just 20 some years after the very first race laws in, uh, in Maryland. And that those laws came after only two years after the first race laws in Virginia, which were the first ever. And her body absorbed the, the violence of those first laws. Wow. Well, I, I thought it was really important, uh, essential for people to know where the title came from. And um, 
and and then also to know why you decided to go on this journey, which uh, I think anytime we're digging around in the past, but especially when you're digging around looking at issues of race, it, it that alone takes a toll. The learning, what you find out takes a toll. Why did you decide to go on that, uh, down that path? So back in, in the early 1990s, my mom and I would actually connect most over the question of our, um, of our ancestry. Our relationship was deeply broken in, in large part because of my um, immersion into the white evangelical world. And, you know, she, she was in SNCC. She dated Stokely Carmichael back in the day. Ah. So she was like, mm. who are you and what have you done with my child? Mm. And I said some very hurtful things to her that I actually talk about in the book around the question of abortion. And that just really just shattered our relationship. So mm. our relationship really healed one step at a time. And one of the things that brought us together was this question of our ancestry. And I actually think that in large part, and for me and for my mom, one of the reasons why she invested in this with me so long is because in some ways it was my way back to myself. Like I lost myself in that white evangelical world. Uh, I lost yeah. a sense of who I am and who my people are. And I think that, that going deep into the ancestry, going deep into those, 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 uh, the stories of my family, it helped me to become reconnected. So but this, this work of, of racial justice is work that I've done for quite some time. I was on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in, in, in Los Angeles, and there I was their director of racial reconciliation for five years in 1999 to 2004. Wow. And then 2004 to 2005, my work was uh, throughout all of Southern California. And then I left, and I left because I felt called away from the campus, and I wanted to know more about how systems and structures impact the world. And that came because I did that pilgrimage that I talk about in the very good gospel. Yes. And it really kind of just propelled me off of the campus. I wanted to know how does policy impact the image of God on earth? How does policy impact the wellness of people? And what does our faith have to say about it? Because if, if you recall at the very beginning of the very good gospel, I said, you know, my understanding of the gospel at that point it was mute. I mean, just literally mute in the face of the worst injustice. It had nothing to say. When I thought about the enslavement that my own ancestors went through and the removal of Native American people, which is, is, is a story told that is a part of my own family's story. When I, when I thought about that, I had no idea how Jesus would respond to that. How could that be? How could we not know how brown colonized Jesus would respond to slavery and, and Native American removal. The only way we don't know is because the narrative about Jesus was crafted in the halls of empire and colonizing nations. That's why we don't know, because his, um, who he was and his people and his lineage and his genealogy has been actually, in many ways, whitewashed and hidden from us twisted, the meanings of them even twisted, made to be over-spiritualized mm -hmm. rather than us knowing. No, the reason why they do, they go through that genealogy. So we will know who he comes from right. because who he comes from has everything to do with who he is and what he's fighting for. Mm -hmm. And so, <laughs> so when I, when I go into fortune 10 generations back, 
what I find is I find not only who I come from, but I also, I find who we are as a nation, as Americans. This, the narrative of who we are has been, has been crafted in the halls of academia and empire here, in the halls of government. We have, we, we know the president's names. We know the wars we went through. We have the, you know, Flag Day. We have Independence Day. We have our holidays that craft a, a narrative that justifies genocide and enslavement or ignores it completely. Mm. We have the myth that when they got here, it was barren, barren land that, that needed to be cultivated. Just a few Indians who helped us to cook dinner once. Mm. You know, we have the myth that um, it is still propagated in some history books that enslavement, the, 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 the slave trade really wasn't that bad. It only lasted about 50 years. If you ask some evangelical Christians, Ooh. 50 years. Yeah. Um, wow. And, and it wasn't that bad. At least they got Jesus. I swear to you, I've heard these things. I've heard these things, well, but these are myths. Yeah. I was just going to say my son is a civil war scholar and he works in a museum outside DC. And he has said to me on many occasions, mom, you would not believe the things I've overheard parents telling kids the utter and complete untruths about uh, that, that era, which the civil war era, which we know um, yeah. about. Uh, yes. So I thought I've, and I, I still can't believe that. But, you know, I, years ago, I went on a justice journey uh, out of Chicago. Um, it was a tremendous experience. Um, the, the, the group going was, um, you know, mo I would say maybe half uh, African-American, half white. Uh, we watched movies along the way and discussed them. We went to all the major civil rights sites of the South. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest shock, and I've maybe said it here on the podcast before, was standing next to um, an African-American uh, person on the, the trip that I had gotten to know who was saying, standing in front of some exhibit at, at one of the museums, I didn't know this. And me, assuming mm. that she, of course, would know this because she yeah. was African-American, but no, we went to the same schools and neither of us knew this. Yeah, that's you know, exactly right. Uh, that was a shocker to me and the importance yeah. of knowing um, history, but true history, the, you know. Yeah. It changes things. Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, the truth is in the details, mm -hmm. right? So the truth is in the details. The truth is in the reality that that when they first got here in 1619, by the way, I just got the book 1619 Project, so I'm so excited about that. Yes. <laughs> uh, right. So, but when they first got here in 1619, um, the the Jamestown um, settlement um, and Point Comfort, where they landed, they had no plan for they not, they didn't have slaves at that point. They had no plan for them. They didn't they didn't even ask for them. It was an English warship that brought them, that had pirated those enslaved people off of a ship that was bound for Mexico because mm -hmm. Mexico had had slaves, had had the slave trade for a hundred years before we ever started anything here. Mm -hmm. And so they were pirated off that ship. They were brought to um, Point Comfort and then sold into Jamestown. And in Jamestown, they had a choice right. that they could have made. They could have said, 
no, nah, we're not, we're not into that. Send them back to where they came from. You know, you pirated them. We don't want free labor. We have our own people. We're good. Um, no, instead they decided to indenture most of those people. I think maybe one or two were enslaved or several maybe were enslaved, but the majority were indentured hmm. because that was the category that they had back then. And that meant that at some point they would be set free. Usually, although sometimes with people of African descent, they just conveniently lost the papers. So they didn't know exactly when they were indentured. So they would be indentured for life, just, just de facto. Right. Um, but there was still only really that category of indentured. Then um, it took about maybe 30 years, 30 years um, later, 40 years later, um, a girl named Elizabeth Key was born and Elizabeth Key's father was um, an, a British citizen mm. and he was, and he also had her baptized and recognized her as his daughter and said, um, okay, so she's my daughter and she's baptized. And she said, wait a minute, then that means I shouldn't be able to be enslaved because according to English law, you can't enslave a fellow British citizen and you can't enslave a fellow Christian. So she took her case to court and she won hmm. and she won her freedom. And then several others went, wait a minute, my dad's a British citizen too. Uh, and I've been baptized. So they won. And then you had the planter class, which were all white men in, uh, in uh, Virginia, who were also the legislators. They were the house of Burgesses. They said, wait, we're, we're losing money. We have to, we have to do something here. So what did they do? They didn't, at that point, they had a choice. They could have said, all right, we are going to create a world where people actually can earn their freedom. And, um, and yes, they, we're going to go according to our own law, which was still, it was still um, unjust because you shouldn't have endangered people anyway, right. but still they could have gone along with that and they could have freed their people over time. But no, what they chose to do was they chose to legislate according to their own financial flourishing, their financial abundance. And what that meant was they needed free labor. So they changed where citizenship came from. It no longer came through the male. Now it came through the female. Oh, no the, way. That's yes. Yeah. And the female was the one that they were raping at night, the African right. enslaved woman. So now citizenship came through her. And, the, and they said in perpetuity. So if, if your mother is enslaved, then you shall be enslaved for life and all your children and children's children after you. So that made basically a permanent slave class. Why? Free labor since 1662. And Maryland did their um, change that created their very first race law two years after that. And their uh -huh. problem was not white men in uh, raping black women. They did have that, but that wasn't the problem they were solving. The problem they were solving for was white women coming from England, indentured servants, and falling in love and marrying enslaved black men. Because they were working alongside them on mm -hmm. the same plantations, falling in love, marrying, and having mixed race kids. And it was the status of those mixed race kids that just ruined everything for those white planters because they didn't know what's their status. Uh, yeah. Because, okay, so, you know, are, are they going to be free or not? So what they decided to do, their first race law, get this, Anita, their first race law in Maryland said, if a white woman marries an enslaved black man and has a child, a mixed race child by that man, then she herself shall be enslaved to her husband's master until her husband's death. And the child 
shall be enslaved in perpetuity, her children. Mm -hmm. So what happens about 10 years later, they look up and they realize the planter class in this Catholic colony is now forcing indentured white women to marry enslaved black men and have mixed race kids in order to have a free labor base mm. in perpetuity. It all goes and they back went, to greed. Yes. yes. All goes back to yes. greed. Yes. Right. That's what yeah. it was. The whole beginning began. It wasn't hate. It wasn't hate. It's interesting. Uh, it was okay. greed. It was greed. And greed caused us to look at our fellow human being and then twist the image of God in them according to the law. Which is <laughs> that greed piece that's going nowhere. That's still, I think about tax laws to, uh, yes. you know, you just go into all of that today. Yes. Redlining. Yes. Um, ed- yes. Ed- educational uh, subjugation where you have, now we have de facto segregation mm-hmm. that our Supreme court back in 2000, excuse me, 2007 said is okay. De facto Segregation is okay, according to the Supreme Court, according to the conservative element of the Supreme Court. So they're already undermining Brown versus the Board of Education, which was really the the greatest reversal of the old slave laws that we had besides, um, of course, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. But those laws, the constitutional law needed, needed teeth. So the Brown versus Board of Education offered judicial teeth, you know, accountability, um, for those for those constitutional amendments, but they, you know, that that's what the whole civil rights movement was fighting for. It was fighting for, it was fighting for the application of the reversal, the application, of, right, right, the application of the right to vote, the application of of the right to have equal protection of the law, and we are still fighting these fights today. So let's inject into this conversation Christians. All right, let's do let's, that. Let's the Christian church. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, there are a couple of different directions I, that I, I want to go. One is I just want to say, I sometimes feel, I say this to my husband, I'll say, I feel uh, hopeless. Like my little one vote means nothing anymore. Um, and so, and comment is always right, right. Your representatives, I'm like, I do. I feel like sometimes that means nothing as well. Mm-hmm. But I, but that's an that's aside. Okay, let's let's go move to the church first here, um, because this is, I mean, this has been in the news uh, over the last couple of election cycles, the role that the church has played, right? Or Christians, I'll say, those who claim to be Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the role that the Christian church um, does play in what's still happening, but also can play mm-hmm. in the potential of being able to heal and repair yeah. th- things in this country. So I'll, I'll well, let you go wherever you're going to, yeah teach and sure. help us. I, <laughs> I, I hope I hope to shine some light. Yes. So here's are, here's are. the thing is that the church is at the is that has since the very beginning has been at the heart of the injustice. And in 1670 when they changed that law, they said, well when they, you know, they said, "Oh, we didn't mean to do that. We didn't mean for to set up a law where white women would be enslaved." Okay, so let's let's change it. Let's and this is how they did it. They said, "We're going to take the power 
out of the hands of the planters to decide who gets indentured and who gets enslaved, because obviously they're going to twist that for their own good. And instead, we're going to put the power of indenture and enslavement in the hands of the church. So they handed the keys to enslavement and also the roles, the, the, the keepers, that, in other words, the auction block of, yeah. the, of the colony became, became the church. The church became the auction square of enslavement and indenture, became the, the arbiter of indenture. And so, so we've, from the very beginning of, of, of this land, of, of, of Western colonization on this land, the church has been at the heart of the injustice and has also seen moments of repentance. So you see in the 1700s, even as far back as the 1600s, you see Quakers actually begin to have a witness and begin to really struggle over their complicity and their involvement in enslavement. You see them, and actually it's even in my family story, on two different lines of my family story, my own ancestors were owned by Quakers. Hmm. Um, One in in Barbados, um, the Weeks family was owned by the Weeks family in Barbados. And uh, the Ballards, Leah Ballard, was owned by the Ballard family Mm. in South Carolina and they came from Virginia and they were Quaker. I think, I don't know this to be true, but I, they, they definitely descend from a Quaker man because he's listed, he's listed in a Quaker meeting in Virginia, but they came down into South Carolina, I believe in order to continue to enslave people. Uh And they broke, they broke from Quakerism in order to continue because they did continue. We know they did at least through the end of the civil war. And so, you know, so again, choices. Um, but what you, what you see also with the church is that the rise of the black church around the end of the 17, 1700s, beginning of the 1800s is what catalyzes the second great awakening. And it is the second great awakening that it actually has a conscience. The second great awakening, right around that time, you see Jonathan Edwards II begin to preach on abolition, preach mm. for abolition. Um, you begin to see um, uh, Charles uh, Finney begin uh, the the altar call and, and his his meetings that he would travel around and and he began to have, in fact, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe and um, Sojourner Truth and and others fought for the ability. Um, Phoebe Palmer fought for the ability to preach with Charles Finney, and they did. Um, and so you had women's empowerment happening at the same time as at these meetings, they were preaching abolition in order to be saved. Like they were literally saying, "Interesting, yeah. we are dirty up in here. We need to get clean. And in order for you to get clean in a slaveocracy, you need to renounce slavery. So that's our history. That led to the Civil War. That led to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment that we see today. The church has has been on both sides of this argument at different times and different streams. But what we're seeing right now is we are actually seeing, we're seeing the stream of the church that has never really fully repented, ever. The same stream of the church that produced the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, which was which came to be in order to preserve enslavement, the slaveocracy of the South, were the same stream of the church that produced the um, Presbyterian Church in America that came to be in order to preserve segregation. Hello, somebody. Mm-hmm. These streams of the church 
have now been captured by this new and really fascist movement that has taken over um, in the South and the Midwest and, and, and has called itself Republicanism, but it's not, it's not even, it's not, it's not actually, it has taken over Republicanism. Um, it has taken over actually even the conservative party. It's not conservative. It's incredibly, incredibly um, lawless actually. There's, there's no law to it. It's really just about maintaining white power, which is what those two streams of the church existed to do was to maintain white power. Well, they're doing it again. And, you know, they've used issues like abortion. They've used issues like LGBTQ um, empowerment or, or, or um, subjugation in order to galvanize the church around these cultural issues. But with their other hand, their hidden hand, what they are actually doing is maintaining white male domination. And you can see that through uh, the Supreme Court justices that they have, that they have elected, that they have, they have appointed under, under Trump, all three of them, none of the three of them would actually um, say outright that they would not overturn Brown versus the Board of Education, which is the only, that is the only um, Supreme Court ruling that stands between now and Plessy versus Ferguson, which said separate and equal was fine. Uh, so, so where does the church come in now? The church has the ability because the church is at the heart of the destruction, because the church has been a part of the decision-making and now is at the center of the movement that's trying to dismantle democracy. The church, because well, I, 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 and I, let me just interject this because I feel like the church is really divided. Yes. Yes. Okay. I, I mean, I want to, I want to state that because I like, that's not the church that I'm yeah. where I'm going, you know, where, uh, but, but, but there's this not small chunk of the church that is about what you're talking about. So here's the thing though. Here's the thing though, Anita, if the church is not actively, like actively working for full democracy, like, and, and by democracy, what I mean is the full flourishing of the image of God within our boundaries. That's democracy. Yeah. The first page of the Bible democratizes power by giving the image of God to all humanity. Oh, yeah, there we go. That's yeah. a democratization of power. So if the church is not abiding by the first page of the whole Bible and trying to protect the flourishing of the image of God in all humans within our, our borders, then the church is, is complicit because we are in a moment right now where you, you got to decide what side are you on? If you, and, and what side you are on has, has to determine your actions. So there's no such thing. There really isn't any such thing as, well, I'm just going to vote Republican because it's just my identity, or this is just what, you know, what we've done. You realize that there's, there's a group that's taken over your party and they are instituting policies right now that are dismantling the capacity for people to flourish if they rule, for people to have the, the right to vote, for people to have the right to equal protection of the law. These laws are being passed in order to maintain white male power. Should they be reelected or should they be placed, placed back in power? So if you vote according to quote your identity, you are making choices. 
that are in line with your ancestors that have that the same ancestors that enslaved my ancestors. You are now culpable. It's big. That's, you know, that's the bottom line. That is the bottom line. And here's the thing. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. You can make a choice, a different choice. Yeah. You can choose to come down off of the, the, the scaffolding of human hierarchy that has been erected in this country since the very beginning. You can decide to dismantle that thing and instead come and join hands with the rest of the community of creation and decide to just be human. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine the freedom of just mm. being human, not needing to control everyone and everything, not needing to always be right. Mm. Allowing mm. God to be God, mm -hmm. allowing God to have mystery so mm. that you don't control even God. And, and so along with what you just, what you just said, which I think is really powerful and important, how, you know, one of the big um, parts of the book is the fact that you talk about um, how, what we need to do to repair yeah. what race mm -hmm. broke in the world. How do we move in that direction? And, and I, and I'm not sure if I, if this is in the book or not, but but I started thinking, are there examples globally that have done it right or well or tried or are doing, yeah. you know, yes. and, but what do we need to do? You, you go anywhere with that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny because what I, um, when I was writing, when I was writing fortune, I had actually intended to, to end it a different way. I was going ah. to end it talking about restitution, right? So it was going to be um, truth telling reparation restitution were the last three chapters. But then I got to thinking, I was like, you know, but that's not going to get us to the beloved community. The beloved community is the goal. I mean, yes. I really started asking, what's the goal here? What is the, is the goal just, you know, repair or is the goal just restitution? You know, what's the goal? Yeah. No, no, the goal is this radically reconnected society where all have the right to flourish and access to flourishing and poverty and oppression will not be tolerated in this society because we value the image of God and we are committed as a society uh, to protecting the image of God in all. And we also recognize that there are things that cannot be restored. There are things that were broken that can never be repaired. They're just not possible. People have died mm -hmm. that will not come back to life. As my friend Soon Chan Ra says, a dead body is in the room. Mm. You know, he, out of the Book of Lamentations in his commentary on Lamentations, he says there's a certain kind of, there are different kinds of, uh, of, of Lamentations, and one of them is the dirge. And there's the, we have to recognize that there's a dead body in the room. There are dead bodies in the room. There's genocide. There's Powerful. the, the yeah. middle passage. There's yeah. the impact. There's even the impact in my own family. This also came out in my own family story. The impact of death by 
racial, I mean, um, ra- um, uh, medical racism. Mm. You know, the fact that for nearly a wow. century, yeah. there were hospitals that would not take people of African descent. So they had no hospitals. So childbirth became a deadly, uh, a deadly encounter for women of African yeah. descent. And two of the people in my family, two Oof. died in childbirth. You know, so we lost people because of medical racism. Wow. So they will not come back. Right. So I have a choice as one who has been, who has, who has been crushed or has, yes. has, has had my own family twisted, yes. maligned by racism. I can hold on to that. And I can demand that you repay what you, what you owe me, even though you cannot, it is impossible for mm. you to bring back my great aunt yeah. Annie or my great grandmother, great, great grandmother, um, Martha, you cannot do it. It just is not possible. And if I were to hold you to that, if I were to make you, you know, then I would be the one who is tied, who is bound by that need, who is bound by that, that unpaid debt bound to you forever because you can't pay it. But forgiveness cuts the tie. Forgiveness severs the tie between the oppressed and the oppressor, the unjust tie. It releases the oppressor from the demand to repay what they cannot repay, that which they cannot repay. And yet there is still something that can be done. Yes. So the repair the last three chapters of fortune actually go in there are three essays on how to repair what race broke in the world. And I, I was kind of nervous, honestly, about writing these three chapters because I thought it's going to change the, t- it's not going to feel, it's going to feel disjointed. The first seven chapters are, are all story and, and relating it to history and relating it to current day. And that's a powerful part of this book. I, you know, I think that story piece is so important. Thank, Thank you. you. And the whole point of that is because I know that that you know, to do a book about repair that is in a in the form of prose is one thing, and there have been many books written like that, but we need one that's grounded in story in order mm-hmm. for us to take it into our bodies, in order yes. for us to really soak in this and understand it in our bodies. So that's why we did that. But the last three chapters are essays, and the first one is on truth telling and truth seeking and truth listening. That's the first step. Which to me, so I just, it reminds me of South Africa, what I've yes. read and learned and movies I've watched. And so I wanted mm-hmm. to hear from you about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So truth, listening, truth, seeking, truth, telling it is inspired by the South African truth and reconciliation commission, which was imperfect it, and did right. not even sure. ach- achieve its own goals ultimately, but that part of it, the truth telling part was uh, critical because until the truth is told, we don't really know what happened. We don't know how to repair it until we know, until we've done the work. And I, so I recommend that all of us actually go deep into our own family stories in order to subvert that the meta narratives that are told to us on high by, by, you know, the history book, um, crafters and the the holiday crafters. No, let's get, what, what happened to my great grandma? (laughs) (laughs) Mm. What actually happened to her? How did the policies of her day impact Mm. her, shape her choices and her life? How about my great, 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 great grandma? Now, for people of African descent, that's going to be very difficult for many of us. 
But now we have DNA. We actually have the ability to trace back beyond the paper trail to the DNA trail. And that's, that's what helped me a lot, actually. I, I wondered if it got easier and easier uh, for you in that 30-year quest because more and more people were getting on board and their DNA was available, et cetera. Yes, exactly. Yes. And in fact, I'd say there was a, a, an acceleration in the last decade because exactly because of that, because more people are uploading documents yeah. um, onto ancestry.com and other, other great sites and more people are doing their DNA around the world. Yeah. So you can actually, you can be connected. You can be reconnected um, to your story and your people and your land in a way that was not possible before. Mm-hmm. Um, the second chapter of that part three is on repair, on reparation. And so reparation is about actually repaying what you can. Mm-hmm. Um, what is possible? Let's do it. Let's just not, let's not argue about whether we should do it. We know we should do it. Just, we need to just do it. And the way that we do it is just as important as the, as um, the reparation itself, because what it takes to repair is to repair the relationship that was broken. And at the heart of the relationship is the question of whether or not the image of God has been honored in the other. And, and what we know, um, if you read the very good gospel, you'll know that what it means to be made in the image of God is to be made created with the call of God to exercise dominion in the world, to exercise stewardship of the world. So the first day that that explorer came to South Africa or the North American continent and looked at the indigenous people and said, I should rule here, not you. That was the day that the relationship was broken. And now, now the repair must actually then recognize and bow to the call of God to exercise dominion in the one who has been subjugated. So like David with the Gibeonites, who the Gibeonites who tell David exactly what it's going to take in order for him to offer reparation for the near genocide that Saul committed against their people. In the same way that David says, what do you say we should do in order for things to be made well with you? We need to ask that question of African-Americans for whom we are the only people group on American soil who has never had reparations paid for the injustice done to us. Never. The only group. So it is time. It's time. And there are lots of groups that have actually made, done that work. And just right now, going through Congress is HR 40 and the TRHT commission put forward by Barbara Lee, HR 40 carried by Sheila Jackson Lee, these are two, um, two pieces of legislation that would move our, our nation into the truth-seeking and truth-telling um, uh, a project of the Truth and Racial Healing and Transformation Commission and the rep- and reparation. HR 40, would, all it would do, would, it would study what reparations would take in the African-American community. And so we can be aware of that now. We have just been made aware of that, if not before. And we can, and this is where it is important to write those, send those emails to, yes. you know, to your representatives to please say yes to this, sign on to yes. this, be for this. This yes. is where we can have effect. Yeah. And throughout the month of February, um, we're actually declaring February Black Fortune Month. And many, ah, many organizations hmm. are actually going to be nice. working with us and helping us to understand this question of reparations and truth telling. Um, by reading the book and then also yes. 
um, by you know tuning into online events throughout the month and at the end of the month having a huge call-in day for HR 40 and the, and the TRHC commission. Very good. Yeah. Listen, we, I could go on and on this. I feel like we have just scratched the surface of your book fortune. There is so much there. Um, I've been just kind of drinking this up uh, from you today. I know those um, listening to the podcast will echo that as well. I am so grateful that you were available and able to come on Faith Conversations. Lisa, thank you. Thank you so much, Anita. It's been an honor. Whew. Lisa Sharon Harper, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. I highly recommend it. And as always, to everyone, I say keep the conversation going.